My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Pam Frake. When social movements or communities in struggle win something, that is rarely the end of the story. Whatever powerful interests have been beaten back to win gains for ordinary people tend to retreat temporarily, regroup, and then come back all the fiercer for having been shown to be vulnerable. Movements must then figure out how to defend their gains and, even better, figure out how to embed what they have won in the political landscape such that rolling it back is no longer feasible. Take, for example, the Fight for $15 and Fairness campaign in Ontario. Though minimum wage struggles have a much longer history in the province, the current campaign began in 2013 in an initiative spearheaded by the Workers' Action Centre in Toronto. There was little movement infrastructure to start with, but in the years since, a province-wide network of workers, community groups, unions, anti-poverty organizations, workers' centers, faith groups, health providers, and labor councils has taken shape and, in several stages, pushed forward an ambitious agenda. In 2017, in the face of growing pressure from this movement, the Liberals introduced and ultimately passed legislation making sweeping changes to employment standards. Though the labor law reforms still leave much room for improvement, they are, according to Frake, an extraordinary start in terms of improving the lives of low-wage and precarious workers. And despite their earlier insistence that they would not do so, the Liberals ended up giving in to the wage demands too. The minimum wage went from $11.60 an hour to $14 an hour as of January 1st, 2018, and it is scheduled to go up to $15 an hour on January 1st, 2019. While the legislation was being debated, there was no shortage of opposition from corporate interests. And since the minimum wage hike took effect at the beginning of the year, the reaction from the business lobby has been loud and fierce. While it has largely been framed as a defense of small business, actual small business owners seem to be taking a range of positions on the issue, while large corporations and institutions beholden to them drive the backlash. With a provincial election happening later in the year, the big business lobby seems keen to elect a government that will roll back the recent gains by low-wage workers. Resistance to this big business backlash has been widespread and spirited. Some of it has been spontaneous. For instance, in various cities, instances have come to light of businesses retaliating against workers who benefit from the minimum wage hike by clawing back various kinds of perks and benefits, and in many cases, there have been spontaneous local campaigns to shame the businesses into relenting. The fight for 15 and fairness itself has been doing a number of things to defend the recent gains and to make them harder for any future government to roll back. An important piece of that is doing trainings in a wide range of contexts, particularly with people who do employment-related work, to make sure that as many people as possible know how the new legislation benefits them, and to get as many people as possible accessing the benefits and rights to which they are now entitled. 
Another piece involves countering scaremongering by the big business lobby by circulating solid research on the actual likely impacts of the minimum wage hike. And, of course, they're using the movement infrastructure built over the last four years to mobilize people. In particular, they're part of the movement to defend Tim Horton's workers. Despite the fact that it's the hard work of mostly low-wage workers at Tim Hortons that in 2016 generated billions of dollars in revenue and hundreds of millions of dollars in profit for Tim Hortons' parent company, Restaurant Brands International, the workers at some Tim Hortons franchises have had various benefits clawed back in the wake of the minimum wage hike. The Fight for 15 and activists from the labor movement and the community in many cities across the province and more recently across the country have mobilized to defend them. And in terms of the provincial election, Frake said, the ultimate goal is to, quote, build a movement so strong that no political party wants to mess with us, end quote. Frake talks with me about the trajectory of the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign in Ontario, about the big business backlash to the gains won by the campaign, and about mobilizing to defend those gains. My name's Pam Frake. I'm the Ontario coordinator for the Fight for 15 and Fairness. The Fight for 15 and Fairness is a campaign that is supported by hundreds of community, labor, faith, student, and other organizations across the province. And we've been successful in pressuring the government to commit to a $15 minimum wage. The first installment just took place January 1st, 2018, when the minimum wage increased from $11.60 an hour to $14. And then in January 1st next year, it'll be $15. But in addition to that, we just won a whole host of improvements to employment standards and labor law to make it a little bit easier for workers in precarious employment and also to make it a little bit easier for workers to join unions. The 14 Now campaign launched in 2013. The target was actually selected by workers in precarious employment themselves. And it was a balancing act between a goal that would be exciting enough to reorganize one's life to participate in, but a goal that's not so high that it doesn't seem as if it's achievable. We really workshopped it with workers in precarious employment and workers in low-income employment and said to them, what do you want to fight for? What do you find exciting? What do you think we can do together? And at the time, they landed on 14 unbeknownst to us, just as the 14 Now campaign launched, so too did the Fight for 15 launch in the United States. So our campaigns were germinating around the same time. Of course, we carried on with our campaign. We know that whenever you talk about the minimum wage, it's never just about the minimum wage. It's always about how many hours do people get? It's about the wage differentials between full-time and part-time and temp agency workers. You know, And so as soon as you pull on one thread, it opens up a whole host of other issues that are important to workers. So we were always very clear that when we were fighting to raise the minimum wage, we were also trying to start a conversation about all of these other connected issues. And so when the Ontario government decided to finally move on the issue of the minimum wage, we didn't get as much of a bump as we had hoped for at the time. The government agreed to increase the minimum wage from $10.25 an hour to 11 But perhaps what was just as important is that we campaigned to make sure that the minimum wage would be indexed to the rate of inflation so that the minimum wage holds its value. And we were happy that we achieved that. 
So we got our first little milestones in 2014. And thanks to the momentum of the American movement, and our members were happy. People felt like when you fight and organize, it delivers results. And so we decided we were going to relaunch under the Fight for 15 and Fairness. And one of the reasons why that was important is that a third component of what we won through the first minimum wage campaign is a commitment on the part of the Liberal government to review all the labor laws. So basically, when the government said, we're going to review all those labor laws, but you can't talk about the level of minimum wage because we already dealt with that, we relaunched under the banner of Fight for 15 and Fairness to say, okay, well, of course, we're going to continue fighting to increase the minimum wage. We didn't get what, what workers actually needed. And if we're going to be mobilizing in the communities to intervene in the labor law review, then we, of course, are going to talk about the level of the minimum wage. And we're not going to squander the previous organizing that we had done in the first campaign. And also, we wanted to use the momentum that our sisters and brothers in the United States had developed with some of their victories that had just come through. So all of these things were giving people energy and confidence to really fight and organize. As it turns out, it became such a popular issue that even though it didn't come forward as a recommendation during the labor law review, last May, the provincial government, when it was tabling its response to the recommendations that came out of the review, they also announced that they would be implementing an increase in the minimum wage. And to our knowledge, it was the fastest phase in period yet in North America. It was actually 1140 when they made the announcement and would be $15 by January 1st, 2019. Now, of course, we know workers needed $15, you know, last year. But nevertheless, it spoke to the strength of the movement that the government felt it had no other option than to deliver on that demand. And it also was a good lesson for organizers to stick to your guns and don't let others define the agenda. We need to be the ones defining the agenda. So that was what happened in May. And so we were pretty happy with that. But I'll tell you something, the honeymoon only lasted about 15 minutes because within 15 minutes of the government's announcement, the business backlash pretty much exploded. And so we've been duking it out with the big business lobby ever since. They've been fear-mongering and releasing all sorts of data that claims that there's going to be anywhere from like 50,000 to 200,000 jobs lost. They're just like way over the top analysis that many prominent economists in Canada have obviously poked holes in. But I'm happy to say that despite their monopoly of the mainstream media and despite all their many resources and advertising and so forth, we are still winning the hearts and minds of Ontarians and two thirds of Ontarians still support a $15 minimum wage, including, I might add, according to the latest polling numbers, 40% of Conservative Party voters support raising the minimum wage to $15 on the timetable presented. And the other complicating factor is the election. There's going to be an Ontario election on June 7th, 2018. So we know that the business lobby are going to be doing everything they can to get their people elected. And the Conservative Party has said it's going to postpone the implementation of the $15 minimum wage. That speaks to the fact that they can't attack it directly, but they're saying they're going to postpone it. It could be much worse if they get elected. So in the original movement, back before the legislation was passed last year, what form did the organizing take? Who was active? Where were they active? What were they doing? When we first launched the $14 Now campaign, I think it's fair to say that there was very little infrastructure in terms of people in the community that could be mobilized and grassroots participation. It felt a little bit like starting from scratch in many ways. 
So what we tried to do to help give people a little bit of a routine that they could build activity around is that we decided to call for a day of action on the 14th of each month. What we did centrally for the campaign is developed a theme. We had different themes for different months. We would get postcards signed and we really gradually built up an infrastructure in the city of Toronto and then across the province. And what was exciting is that as the 14th of each month kind of got going, more and more people began to jump on to the campaign. And so that began to create this bit of a network that all of a sudden all sorts of people were calling, wanting to know what was happening. And so we then launched what we call the Provincial Mobilizing Network. And it was just comprised of people who are part of the groups and, you know, unions and community organizations that really wanted to work on the $14 Now campaign. So then we developed monthly teleconferences where we could share information, tell how it's going, that kind of thing. And so by the time we finished phase one of the campaign, we had this whole network that had been built up which really allowed us to mobilize in our communities during the labor law review, because the labor law review traveled throughout the province and took deputations from ordinary workers and from community and labor advocates to talk about what are the structural sources of precarious work or what are the things that could be changed in law to curb the rise of casual part-time and so forth, low-wage work. And so because we had these networks in the communities, it really did allow us to broaden the conversation around decent work. It allowed us to build on the infrastructure that we had developed and add to it. The labor councils in the different municipalities were very, very important to our movement. The support of the Ontario Federation of Labor was also very important in terms of amplifying our message. And then, of course, the networks of anti-poverty groups, student groups, and so forth. And then we set about activating new networks. So we said to ourselves, how can we bring new voices to the table? And so we started working with health providers who looked at the question of decent work through the lens of health and social determinants of health. And then we began to have conversations with faith leaders from a variety of different communities. We put resources into organizing the Chinese language communities, the Spanish language communities, Tamil language communities. It's been a bit of a work in progress, but that first phase of the campaign where we had our monthly actions, I think was really an important tool. But as we got more infrastructure, we were able to give the local networks that were emerging a lot more freedom for them to say, what do we want to do in our community? What are the outreach actions that we want to do? And people began to get creative and develop all sorts of fantastic outreach and public forum ideas. Talk more about the fairness side of the campaign. What kinds of changes were you demanding in employment standards? And what did you actually win in the legislation that passed last year? A really, really key win for us was the provision in legislation of equal pay, regardless of whether you're full-time, part-time, or temp agency. And the legislation explicitly states that the wages are leveled out by raising the bottom up, not by bringing the top down. Now that those wages have to be the same, that gets away at the kind of incentives that currently exist for employers to use temp agencies. So that's one area. Another area that was very important is that we campaigned very hard to extend job-protected emergency leave for all workers. Also, we wanted to make sure that there was seven paid sick days. And we also campaigned against doctor's notes. And this is where we really involved the health providers. We won job-protected emergency leave for all workers. So that affects another 1.7 million workers in Ontario. We didn't get the seven paid sick days, but what the government did do is those 10 days of job-protected emergency leave 
they introduced a provision whereby two of those 10 days will be paid. And for a worker to access those days, the employer is not allowed to ask for a sick note. So that's really fantastic. Of course, we're going to continue campaigning to extend the number of paid emergency leave days, but just getting two is huge. Other areas where we accomplished a lot, there's some commitments to a little bit better enforcement. There's commitments to address issues of wage theft and so forth. We got a series of amendments that would make it a bit easier for workers to join unions. There's protection against contract flipping in the building services sectors as well. On the question of misclassification, that's a really huge change that we've won. What some of these companies will do is that they will suddenly tell their worker, oh, you're self-employed now, and we'll just bring you in as a contractor. So people wind up working for less than minimum wage. They don't get their pension entitlements. They don't get their EI entitlements. They don't get their health and safety insurance board contributions. So the onus now under the legislation is for an employer to prove that the person is not a worker, whereas before it was up to the worker to prove that they were a worker. And we feel like that is going to make a big difference in terms of people being able to assert their rights. There's a whole series of things we've got under scheduling. For the first time ever, there's going to be a financial penalty for employers who keep workers on call all day long without calling them in. There's a lot of other details, you know, uh, women don't have to wear high-heeled shoes anymore. There's a whole bunch of little things as well like that. But really, overall, it is an extraordinary start. It's not nearly as far as we need to go. There's two important areas that we need to keep campaigning for. Well, three, really. One is in the area of exemptions. And right now, there's a lot of sectors are exempted from basic minimum standards. We're also continuing to fight for joint and several liability for temp agencies and client companies. So this one's a bit technical, but it boils down to making sure that for temp agency workers, rather than only the agency having liability for health and safety issues, the agency and the company where the worker is placed share liability. And then we also want to push for broader based bargaining. In small workplaces, it's very hard for workers to have any real power. So we want to have broader-based bargaining. We can think about a sectoral approach. We can think about a a variety of approaches. And and the government has actually committed to exploring this. So we need to push them on that. But uh, these kinds of measures, I think, are going to be very important for the future. What forms have the employer and business lobby backlash been taking, especially most recently since the raise to $14 an hour came into effect at the beginning of January? Soon as 2018 broke, we hear stories of Tim Hortons, a multinational corporation that literally makes hundreds of millions of dollars in profit off the backs of low-wage workers, has decided to claw back the minimum wage increase by eliminating paid breaks in some cases, by making people pay more for their basic health and dental benefits, by making workers pay for their uniforms, by eliminating the single cup of coffee and donut that some of the workers used to get at the end of their shift. It's interesting because all of the big corporations that have been lobbying against the increased minimum wage claim that they're doing it on behalf of small businesses, but the polling data shows that over 60% of small business owners actually support raising the minimum wage. And the data also shows that most small business owners already pay more than the minimum wage. The biggest users of minimum wage employment are corporations with over 500 employees. So there's been this media narrative that raising the minimum wage is going to you know, bankrupt all these mom and pop shops. 
when that's just not what the evidence shows. Where the furor seems to be coming from, as we've seen with Tim Hortons, where you have a CEO that makes $1.7 million in salaries and perks, that's where the biggest complaints are coming from. Recently, we heard Galen Weston of the Weston family. It's Canada's equivalent to the Walton family in the U.S. with Walmart. Galen Weston basically said, oh, in response to the minimum wage increase, we're going to have to lay off workers. And so there was a huge backlash against that. It's a massively profitable corporation. And so they're the ones that are spinning this narrative that somehow it's going to bankrupt the economy if we pay workers a wage that brings them to the poverty line. We know the lived experience all over the world. There's literally decades of research that shows that when the minimum wage increases, it does not cause inflation. It does not cause massive job loss. There's a little bit of churn in the marketplace because there are some business models that are unsustainable and they're predicated on cheap, unsustainable, you know, poverty level wages. And those are the business models that are not going to be sustained in a new environment. But what's so fantastic is that when there are decent business models that are not predicated on poverty wages, why should they have to be competing with these sketchy operations? And most small businesses know that when some of those big box stores come to town, that's often the death knell for the small business owners in communities. The form that the corporate lobby has been taking is to claim that they're speaking for mom and pop shops. But the reality is, is that the outfits like Loblaws and Galen Weston and Tim Hortons, they're actually these big, profitable multinational corporations that are refusing to share their wealth with the workers that actually generate all that wealth for them. The only obstacles we have are the corporations that don't want to part with one red cent of their vast wealth. And the great thing about the moment we're living in now is that it's so clear right across Canada that ordinary people are saying, enough, we've had it with these greedy corporations and we're standing with the workers. And what have people been doing to defend these gains? One of the sort of more organized features of the campaign is to get the information out there that the evidence is with us, doing workshops and holding town halls, equipping people with the economic analysis that they need to build their confidence. Whenever there's a bad boss that is trying to take punitive measures against employees, there's been this spontaneous outcry, and that's forced a number of employers to backtrack already. In Ottawa, Rainbow Foods tried to cut breaks, and there was such an outpouring of outrage that they backed off. There was recently a grocery store in Toronto that also backtracked. And again, I think this is because of the spontaneous outcries that have been happening when workers have been letting the public know that these issues are taking place and that they put them out over social media. And there's been this enormous response. It wouldn't have been our hashtag, Boycott Tim Hortons, but the fact that literally within hours of the reports being made public that the heirs to the Tim Horton fortune, while they were basking poolside in Florida, typing up the memo of how they're going to gouge their employees, ordinary people put it out there to say, oh my gosh, I am not going to part with my hard-earned money. I'm never giving my money to that corporation. Who's with me? And the fact that so many people said, I'm with you by using that hashtag, Boycott Tim Hortons, it was just an incredible moment of solidarity. Today, we just finished a huge day of action. It's our second day of action since the new year. The first one was Ontario-wide, and the second one was Pan-Canadian. And I'm happy to report that we had solidarity and outrage, literally from Vancouver, British Columbia, to Halifax, Nova Scotia. But the other thing that we're doing in a more organized way as well is that we're trying to do workshops to make sure that people know precisely what's in the legislation, because it really is a lot of ground. 
So we are starting to do workshops with community organizations, with people who work on the front lines in employment-related fields. We're working with faith leaders and houses of worship where we can come in and do workshops with their staff so that more and more people can know what their rights are under the legislation. And then we're also organizing with unions. One of the things that unions have been doing that I think is very important is bargaining some of the provisions of Bill 148 into their collective agreements so as to protect those provisions in the event that the legislation gets changed, because we do have an election coming up. So things like equal pay, for example, that's going to be very important to protect. We really need to get the word out and to make sure that workers know their rights and they can assert their rights and enforce their rights. We also have an action on the go as well because the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, this business outfit that has been one of the leading organizations leading the charge against decent work, and we have learned that colleges and universities are members of the Chamber of Commerce. So we have a little campaign going where we're calling on our colleges and universities to distance themselves from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce campaign that opposes decent work for Ontario communities. People can write letters to their college and university presidents asking that they distance themselves. What dangers and opportunities are posed by the upcoming provincial election, and how will the fight for 15 and fairness be relating to it? We want to build a movement so strong that no political party wants to mess with us. That's our goal, and I think we're doing very well in getting there. Not only do we want to protect what we've won so far, we want to actually extend it. And we want to be able to make these issues like regulating temp agencies and Georgian several liability, broader-based bargaining, all of those things. We want them to be key issues in the provincial election. We don't think that the changes that we accomplished in legislation were anything that was just handed over to us because someone woke up one day and decided they wanted to do right by workers. We know that we had to fight tooth and nail every single step of the way to get what we got. We created a political climate in this province where the governing party feels as though they have to bend in our direction if they want to get elected again. And we recognize that that's both a product of our strength But it's also a product of the weakness of the government in general, because it is true after 14 years, there's a lot of baggage and there's a lot of animosity toward the government. But we think our movement has been strong enough that it's made this direction attractive because there's more than one way to be opportunist in an election. And all we have to do is look south of the 49th parallel to see some pretty ugly versions of how people can be opportunist. So we feel like we've managed to shape the terrain, which is excellent. We are encouraging all political parties to endorse all aspects of the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign. The Liberals have put a bunch of stuff on the table. The NDP has put some more things on the table. And when it comes to the election, we're going to be doing a basic objective assessment to say, here's what the three parties are offering. We want our movement to be well-informed and make a decision about who's the party that is most likely going to deliver 15 and fairness in the months ahead. And as I say, we have one political party, the Progressive Conservative Party has already said that they will postpone the $15 minimum wage. They did not vote in favor of the legislation. And even if a party gets elected that doesn't like 15 and fairness, we are going to make sure that they're too scared to come and touch us. The strength of the movement is the thing that we have to build on, and that's going to be the thing that will protect and extend our gains, regardless of what party forms the next government. You have been listening to my interview with Pam Frake of Ontario's Fight for $15 and Fairness campaign. To learn more about their work and to find out how to get involved, go to 15andfairness.org. That's numeral 1, numeral 5, and fairness 
www.talkingradical.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Your